Well, good morning again, and uh, welcome. We are jumping into a new sermon series for the summer. Uh, we're going to be preaching through the books of the kings, uh, kings of Israel, and we're jumping into a place where it's it's a big party. It's a big dedication party, and uh, if you if when you build a new building or um, if you have a new house or something, you often throw a big party, sort of a housewarming, a dedication party. And uh, in fact, the building that you're sitting in today, the room that you're sitting in, there was a big party, a big celebration, uh, a big ceremony when this, uh, when the foundation was was laid for this building, and uh, I have so we because we've been in this building for over a hundred years, we haven't thrown a party like that in a while. I think there was a, a big dedication when the rotunda was built. Um, we have we we got new carpet in the hallway last week upstairs. If you didn't walk through, make sure to walk through. We got new <laughs> carpet, uh, very um, utilitarian and and but also lovely. So. We, uh, we, we didn't throw a party for that, but there was a party thrown for this room. Uh, this is the, uh, the history of our church here. So it says, um, this was spoken at the dedication of this building. It says, for this purpose we rear these walls that the blessings of the gospel, which our fathers trusted and worked for, may be felt uh, wherever our influence can reach. That the blessings of the gospel will be felt wherever, wherever we have influence. That that's why this building is here. Uh, and the, the speaker went on to say, the success of this church. Oh, he was speaking of the, the founders of the church and their faithfulness. And he said, the success of the church to be erected here will depend not upon any past reputation or achievements, but upon the consecrated Christian thinking and living of those who work and worship here, that they weren't going to just rest in the past, but this new building was a new day to trust God. Another speaker said, we hope that for a hundred years, perhaps 200 years, this building will stand here bearing witness to one generation after another that faith in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior shall abide and continue to bear fruit in human lives. They had a vision that for at least a hundred years, which We've crossed that one, but even for 200 years that this building would be here and that, uh, that faith in God would be known and shared. So it was a great, that, that, that kind of a, a celebration, a dedication. And here um, we have a, a dedication of a temple. That, that, that's where we're jumping in. A real, and it's a real high point. For God's people, it's a really high point for this nation. Uh, but what we're going to see as we as we study through the rest of the book of Kings, that this real high point in the greatness of the kingdom that they're on now, we're going to see kind of a, a steady spiral and decline and civil war and bad leadership. And it, all this greatness is going to fade quickly, um, even in Solomon's reign. And it's just... Um, there's going to be some glimmers of goodness, but you're going to see a real decline. So at least it's good to start on kind of the, the high point today. Uh, so the question is, why are we studying the book of Kings this summer? And uh, there's, there's a few reasons. One is we've never, as far as I know, that we've never preached through the book of Kings. Uh, so and, and I, I think we, we want to consider and reflect on portions of Scripture that we may not have as a community to help build our understanding of God's heart and of his word. Kings can be a difficult book to read if you've ever tried to read through it. It's sort of like if you've, if you've ever tried to untangle uh, earbuds. 
it, it's like that because you have two. So in the book of Kings, you have two, really two kingdoms that are being described. And it jumps back and forth between the two kingdoms. you got two Jeroboams in one kingdom and a Rehoboam in the other kingdom. And then that's at the same time as one of the Jeroboams. And then you have a Joram and a Jehoram, in one in each kingdom. you got double Ahaziahs. You've got, um, you, you start reading it and you get this ice cream headache of de- this, this maze of detail of all these people and places. And um, I, the hope is that as we look at some of these passages, we're going to start to untangle that together. And we'll be able to unlock this um, part of the Bible. And so it's been the tradition of Free Christian Church in the summertime to, to tackle some of these Old Testament texts and topics. And as we do, this is a, a, almost a 400-year history of God's people. But this history is the backdrop of all the writings of the prophets of the Old Testament. So this is 17 books of the Bible that use this as a backdrop, either as it's happening or looking back at it. So to understand it is really going to unlock all that other stuff, too. So this is kind of a key historic uh, background. But for us today, so okay, that's great historically, but what, what about Free Christian Church today? And what we will see as we look through these accounts is that it will help us to answer questions that you might be asking, maybe questions you've even brought with you today. Questions like, is the God of the Bible actually the one true God? And is he, is he in control today? And underneath that question is the question, you know, can... Um, is he in control of the circumstances of my life and my family and my work and my concerns? And as we look through Kings, we will see, yes, that the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, is the one true God. And he was in control then. Even with the rising and falling of nations, that God was in control and he remains in control today. You, you might also come with questions of, you know, how am I to live my life today? You know, what, by what standard? You know, God in every generation has made his way known. He has made his word known to the world and he has made it clear. And every generation, including ours, has a choice. That am I going to follow God's way, his leading? Am I going to be obedient to him? Am I going to trust him? Am I going to worship him? Or am I going to worship something else? And every generation has to make that decision, including ours. God desires our exclusive worship, our exclusive obedience to him alone. And then, I guess, kind of leads to sort of the ultimate last question is, can I trust God? Is the God of the universe trustworthy? Are his promises good? And as we, again, as we look through these texts, in spite of our failure, in spite of uh, human sinfulness, God's promises don't change and he's faithful to them. So we're going to see all those things as we look through these texts together. And I want to jump in um, a little bit more into this uh, text that was just read for us. Let's pray as we begin. So Father God, as we begin this uh, new journey and a new season through, through this summertime, we just pray your blessing over it. We pray that we would learn from you, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher each week that we are here, that you would give us insights from your word, and that we would use those insights, Lord, to operate from that they would be transforming um, in our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit to help us to know your heart and respond to your heart, to your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
So we're jumping into uh, we're jumping into a new book. We're actually jumping into chapter eight. So a little bit of background. This uh, account. Now I'm going to say the book of Kings in your Bible. It's two books, but it really written as one book and later broken into two. You know, for the sake of fitting it onto scrolls and things, and broken into two books. But essentially one book. And Kings picks up where the life of David, who was the second king of Israel, where his life is ending. He's very old. He's frail. He, uh, is, he is handing off the reins of the kingdom to his son Solomon, who's going to be the heir who will succeed the throne of, of the kingdom. And uh, he commends David as he's dying. He commends his son Solomon to trust the Lord God, to be faithful to the Lord God. And for the most part, up, up to... Chapter 8 here, Solomon's doing okay. The nation is at peace. He begins this huge building project to build a temple for God. And they spend seven years. They spend, there's probably about 200,000 men who have worked on this massive project. The, the finest uh, beams of wood, the finest gold and, and fabric and everything that they used to, to put, it was a spectacular building. And they, they finish the building. They're putting the final pieces of furniture into this temple. And the last piece is the, the Ark of the Covenant. It's the, it's, an ark is it's just a container, a box. And in it is the Ten Commandments. And they put it in its place. And all of a sudden, boom, the presence of God fills the place, this great cloud, this great smoke of God's presence. And everybody just has to stop what they're doing. We see in verse 10. And you just, you just know that God is present with his people here um, at, this, at this event. And that's where we are jumping in. And I want to look at four uh, words or four concepts that, that we see right away in this account. If we can understand these concepts, the rest of the book of Kings is going to make a lot of sense to us. As we, uh, they, they help us to understand God's heart. There are also concepts and themes that we see through the beginning of Scripture right to the end. And if we can understand these things, then as we use the words over the summer, so you guys came this weekend, which is really good, because you get all the foundational stuff. As, as we go through the summer, you're going you're gonna, to uh, hear them again and again, and it's going to remind you of these four things. The first, the first concept is temple. The concept of a temple. And when we think of the concept of a temple, we are reminded that God's desire is to dwell with his people. God's desire is to dwell with his people. Verse 13, Solomon says, I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell Forever. Now, God does not need a temple. He doesn't need a house to live in. God is uh, omnipresent. He is everywhere. And in, in the ancient Near East, there were all kinds of temples to the various gods. And the idea of the temple was that the presence of that god um, was most known in that locality. It was a fixed place where that deity sort of lived or inhabited. For the God of the Bible... If you think about it, right from the beginning, we see God's heart to dwell with his people in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is sort of like a temple. It was a fixed place. It had boundaries. And we have Adam and Eve. And there's God just 
walking, just speaking. He's just dwelling with his people. That's God's good creation. That's God's heart. It's his intent to dwell with his people. Uh, But of course, um, sin comes in and sin breaks that perfect relationship and fellowship of God dwelling with his people. But, but even though people sin and they turn from God and that breaks this relationship, God's desire to dwell with his people is still there. And again, this is not people you know, searching after God or trying to find him. It's him just making himself known, making himself present. So here uh, we, we have Solomon and he's building the first sort of real physical temple for the God of Israel. It's fashioned after what we call the tabernacle, which was a sort of a portable temple that God had instructed at the time of Moses, that God had instructed. He said, we're going to construct a a structure, and it's a portable structure. It's a big tent. It's a big, really fancy tent uh, where I'm going to be present. And then when I move on from that, you're going to pack it up, and we're going to move, and I'm going to lead you in that way. I'm going to dwell with you in this special way as God is unfolding his rescue of a broken world. But here, Solomon builds a more permanent home. And again, God's presence there just reminds them that this God, who's so powerful and so great, wants to be with us. Then, of course, if we think of the whole Bible in this way, Jesus comes on the scene. And in the Gospel of John, it's described that Jesus was there at the beginning. He was the Word uh, who was with God at the beginning, who through all things were made. And he came and he made his dwelling among us. And that word dwelling that John, the Gospel writer, uses is the same word for tabernacle. That Jesus came and he tabernacled among us. That God His desire to dwell with his people is most ultimately known in his taking on human flesh, Jesus Christ, walking with us. The Gospel of Matthew describes Jesus as Emmanuel, which means God with us. That God is dwelling with us, that God has come to be with us in Jesus Christ. So this whole idea of temple and God's dwelling, we see right from the beginning, right through Jesus. And even today, we... Where's the temple today? We read in scripture that we are the temple. That God's spirit has come, just as God's spirit descended on this building that Solomon built. God's spirit descends on our bodies. That we, by faith, receive his spirit. And then we become sort of a portable temple wherever we go. Therefore, we talk about this all the time. Everywhere you go is a sacred place. Everywhere you go, the temple of God is on the move to those places. And God's presence can be known in those places because you're there. And because God's spirit lives in you as you put your faith in him. And we, we talk about this, that there's no, um, if, if God is with you, that there is no sort of sacred things and just secular things. That everything becomes sacred because God's presence is always there. But that divide between the sacred and the secular runs so deep in the human heart and it runs deep in our culture that we always have to remind um, about it. But I'm hearing more and more testimonies of your lives 
what's going on on your front lines, what the work that God is doing in and through you in the places that he's put you. And we're going to keep telling those stories. And it reminds us we're never alone and God is at work. So whenever you hear temple, think God desires to dwell with his people. The second concept that we see right away here is the concept of king. That, and when we hear the concept of king, we think or we're reminded that God desires to rule his people. So uh, David was a king. Um, Solomon then succeeds him as king. But right from, go back now to the beginning of time in the Garden of Eden, God sets himself up as king. He creates all, all the, uh, the realms of the world. All the, he creates the, the water and the sky and the earth. And he fills them with, with animals and fish and birds. And he does all these things. And then God creates human beings to be like him. Scripture describes it as we are created in God's image. So we reflect who God is. Well, if God is a king, then we reflect God as king. So what's the first thing humans are to do in Scripture that we are to rule over fish, which is my as a fisherman, I love that. I I use that all the time. Like we're supposed to rule over fish, but the point is that we have a kingly role in this world to to rule over it and to care for it and to be stewards of God's creation. So God is king, and we are in His image, kind of like little kings ruling over this created world. Um, but again, because of sin. There's frustration between people and the environment around us. There's frustration between, relationally between people. And over time, there's animosity between people. There's killing. There's quarrels. Nations and people become more tribal, uh, tribally separated from one another. But through one nation, God says, I'm going to redeem this whole world. I'm going to bless the whole world. And he chooses a man named Abraham. And through his descendants, and we know them as the Israelites, through his descendants, all the nations of the world will know God's blessing. And that he will, and that God is king of all things. Now over time, this, um, this family through whom God is, is extending his blessing, um, there was different leaders. There was elders and there was prophets to bring messages and there were judges to, um, to, to rule over things. But the nation, you read about this in the book, of 1 Samuel 8, they, they go to the prophet and they say, we actually want a king. Uh, you know, Israel doesn't have a king like the other nations have, and we want, we want a king. God sees this as a rejection of his king, kingness. Ship, kingship. God sees, thank you. This is a group effort today. God sees this as a rejection of his kingship. And he said uh, to the prophet Samuel, he said, look, go ahead and we're going to give these people, these people want a king, we're going to give them a king, but you need to warn them. When you get a king, you're going to get what? Taxes. You're going to get a king, you're going to get taxes and a draft. And they're going to take your young men into war. And they're going to take your stuff and they're going to tax and take your best cattle and your best sheep and your best possessions. And you're going to get these things. And quite honestly, you're going to get slavery. You're going to get a draft. You're going to get slavery. You're going to get taxes. And you're not going to like it. So the prophet goes and he said, hey, God says you're going to get taxes. And you're going to get a draft. And he gives all the warning. And the people said, you know what? 
We don't care. We want the king anyway. Why? Because all the other nations have kings and we don't. And here we have God desires to be the king of his people, to rule his people, and they want something else or a different version of it. And for them, the popular opinion of other nations and other people ruled the day. This, for us, is a very relevant thing. There may be things that God has designed for his rule and his reign of this world that other people in the world and other nations say, no, we've got a different plan for life, different priority. And every generation has a choice to say, will God be our ruler and king, or do we just do what other nations do or what other people say is right or what other, you know, my other family members have a different way of living my friends, you know, am I going to follow God or am I going to follow everybody else's way? In the book of Kings, as we study this, we're going to see the fruit of going your own way, of just doing what the other nations do and doing what people think is right, and you're going to see what happens with that. And unfortunately, there's going to be great failure in that. There's going to be a steep decline of this nation, and it's, it's going to go bad. But it's always going to point to the fact that God is the ultimate king. And again, when Jesus came on the scene... He revealed himself as establishing God's kingdom on earth, that he was king. And, and the people started to recognize it. Even on that Palm Sunday, people said, blessed is the king of Israel. They see Jesus on that donkey and they said, that's the king of Israel. And they were awaiting this, uh, uh, the, the, the one true king. And even Jesus on trial, he was asked, you know, are you a king? And he said, yeah, actually, I am a king. But my kingdom's not of this world. This, what you see kings around here, that's not what I'm bringing. I'm bringing God's kingdom. And it's a different kind of kingdom. And it's not a kingdom where the king exploits the people to gain victory. It's a kingdom where the king lays down his life to save his people. And to be part of his kingdom, you have to follow that same way, where you sacrificially give up your life in love for others to serve others. That's the kingdom. That's the king who Jesus is. That's the kingdom we live in. So the question for us as a church and for you as an individual is, who's your king? Who rules your life? By what standards do you live? And if Jesus is not the king of your life, there will always be this tension that God set up the world he said, this is how it runs. I rule it. And if you live in light of that, it's going to make sense. And if you don't live in light of that, there will always be this tension, this pull of your desire and God's desire for your life. And there's this great gap. And by faith, we put our trust in him and say, I'm going to follow you. I want to know your way. If Jesus is the king of your life, then you still feel tension. The tension now is between what God is doing in and through you and what is happening around us in the world. And you'll feel that tension between God's kingdom and everything else. So it creates a tension, but we remember that um, when we hear the word king, we think of the ultimate king, Jesus, and we remember that God desires to rule his people. The third concept, the third word that we're going to encounter through it here this morning, but throughout this whole series, is covenant. The theme of covenant when we think of covenant, we, we remember that God is faithful to his people. That God is faithful to his promises. That God binds himself in covenant promises to his people. Which in itself, quite honestly, is an astounding notion. That the God of the universe would bind himself to his creation by his promises. But that's how God, that's the God we serve. 
And God makes these covenant promises. He makes promises with Abraham and Moses and David. And and the promise that he made to King David was that there would be an eternal kingdom. He promised, you know, yes, uh, there will be a temple that would be built. Yes, one of your sons will succeed you. But there will always be uh, a ruler. And there's going to be an eternal ruler that comes from your family. It's a beautiful promise. And and in verse 20, we see Solomon recognizing that this promise is being fulfilled. He says, uh, verse 20, The Lord has kept the promise he made. I have succeeded David, my father, and now I sit on the throne of Israel, just as the Lord promised. And I have built the temple for the name of the Lord, uh, the, the God of Israel. In this very promise, 2 Samuel chapter 7, you can read about this beautiful promise that God makes to, makes to David and his family, and now is being fulfilled. But this eternal throne, Solomon doesn't fulfill that. He has his reign, and he, he does okay, and then he really fails, eventually. But what about this eternal kingdom? That's fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of that covenant promise. And then Jesus himself establishes a new covenant, and I'll use that language as we celebrate the Lord's Supper later, Uh, where Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Um, That if we trust what Jesus accomplished on the cross, our sins are forgiven, we receive new life, a new abundant and eternal life in him. And that's a fulfillment of God's promise to give that to us. And all we do is respond in faith. Covenant promise of God. So when you hear that word covenant, you remind yourself of God's faithfulness. And we want to know God's presence. And he does desire to lead us and and rule us. But but we're following a God who is full of grace. We're all works in progress. But we follow his grace. And this morning, maybe you're sitting here and maybe you feel like you've drifted from your faith. Or maybe you had a faith when you were younger or years ago and somehow it's just not there today. Remember that Our life with God is not based on how amazing you are or how well you've obeyed, but it's about how faithfully God stays true to his promises to us. And that today, even today, in faith, you turn back to him, he's still good, his grace is still sufficient, and he's right there to bring you back into it. However you've drifted, today is the day to return to our faithful God, remembering his covenant. Last one. The fourth concept is the concept of exodus. And when we think of the concept of exodus, we remember that God saves his people. We see this at the end of verse 21. He's talking about this, um, the temple is a place for for the ark, uh, which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our ancestors So there's that idea of covenant, promise. He made with our ancestors when he brought them out of Egypt. So it was all tied to an event where God's people were enslaved. And they were in this terrible slavery in Egypt under terrible leadership. And and they were abused and they were were just in terrible conditions. And they cry out to the Lord and God rescues them. He saves them. And this creates a pattern of God's desire to, to save his people from slavery. And that first exodus and the freedom that God brought to them. Now in Kings, it becomes, when we look through Kings, it becomes a theme. It becomes a reminder um, to that God freed you. 
that God brought you to this good land, that God called you to be a nation together. And don't go back into slavery and don't go back to Egypt. Actually, Egypt is going to play a role throughout, um, throughout these texts. Unfortunately, we're going to see God's people fall into unfaithfulness. They're going to abandon their God. They're going to end up, they're going to end up slaves again. They're going to end up in exile under the rule of a foreign nation again, needing another rescue. But even in their failure, we're going to see the promise of God as, as he calls them back to faith, that he restores them, he saves them. It becomes a pattern of exodus, of freedom from slavery. All this points to the ultimate exodus, the ultimate rescue from slavery. It's the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus said, whoever sins is a slave to sin. It's the, it's the worst type of slavery because it, it separates us from God and it, it, it controls us. And just like at the first exodus, we have that Passover lamb. The blood of that lamb covered the people from, from the death that was coming. The blood of Jesus shed for us on the cross covers our sin. And we are freed we are freed from, from our sin. And, and this morning as we take communion together, we're reminded of that exodus, of, of being freed from slavery and being, being given that new life. And so this morning, my encouragement to you as an act of faith is to receive these elements and to take them with great gratitude, remembering the God who desires to save. So that's our key themes uh, that we're going to lean into as we continue through uh, the study this summer but if we understand these key themes, we will understand God's heart for his people. God's heart to dwell with us, his, his heart to rule and to guide us, his heart to be faithful to his own promises, and his heart to save us. And the same God then is the same God today, the same God forever. We can approach him in faith. Let us pray. Father God, today is a day... Um, today is a new day because the sun came up and we are alive and in your presence and it is a day to turn to you in faith to receive your grace and all the blessings of being your people. I pray for anyone here who may have never done that, that today might be a day of faith where they say, um, God, I, I, want, I want to know your way. Father, I pray for those who have wandered in, in various ways, who come here with guilt or whatever shame or feeling distant from you, I pray that they would just, uh, at this time, Lord, I put myself there. I, I repent of my sin and my wandering. I pray that we would turn to you in faith and receive your grace and be renewed today. And Father, I pray that for all of us, whatever we've come here with, whatever we wrestle with, whatever we, uh, wherever we have doubts, wherever we have struggles, Lord, that we would see that you are the God of all things, that you are in control of all things, and that you are good and that you are at work, and that we would trust you with all these things. So those things that weigh us down, those things that burden us, our concerns for ourselves, for uh, for health, for others, for those we love, Lord. We give it to you. We pray you do your good work. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.